Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. Winning game four, at least pride-wise, made me feel good because you don't ever want to get swept. I'm indifferent to him whether or not he signs it. I'll be uh, hitting Milwaukee for the next five years. If you ask me, can the Bucks win game five? I put it at 40% confidence, yes. To think that, that a season is championship or bust is is um, certainly not the way we've approached it. At this point, we don't know what's going to happen. You can get game six. You can steal it. Championship or bust. Winning game six and seven. Championship or bust. I don't think they're going to win the whole series, but... There is no enjoyment with this team. Hello, and welcome to the Brew Hoop Podcast, episode 83. I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of brewhoop.com, joined, as per usual, by my fellas, Riley Feldman and Kyle Carr. How are you doing this today? Doing okay. We got a little bit of snow. Not to the same extent that Kyle and everybody in Wisconsin has, but we're getting a little bit of flurries this morning, which is looking quite pretty outside my window. And they're helping salve a little bit the the wounds of having lost uh, the likes of the Pelicans and the Hornets this past week. Um, so what could have been a bad morning, really, I got some good sleep. I didn't lose any sleep over loss of the Hornets. And now I get to see some beautiful landscape outside. So I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, we got, let's see, nine inches of snow, two zero one day. And I'm pretty sure at the current moment, there's six or seven right now. Not looking forward to shoveling that, but I guess... We all should just hopefully be lucky enough to just be around to get a COVID vaccine and use the justification of my wife is pregnant. So that way it's all right. It's all chill. <laughs> it is all right. And it is all chill. That's a really good way to put that. <laughs> it's such, well, such a know. dumb tweet. <laughs> oh, golly me. Look at me. I'm just so lucky as the son of a billionaire owner and able to get a COVID vaccine. Just, I just happen to be right there. N- nothing weird about it at all. I just felt so we don't have it, it can remain unnamed, but I just felt like when the story came out, shout out to the Journal Sentinel. That was one of the most clickbaity like tweets I've seen in a long time. And then I was like, all right, if I was this dude, I would just stay off of Twitter. Like, it seems like he's calmed down a little bit this year on Twitter. I don't know if he's not logging on or what. It was like, just stay stay off it and then like 30 minutes later he came out with the tweet i was like oh no like it's like trust me this is not the way you're gonna want to go about this but right you know, we all make mistakes it happens i mean i don't blame him for taking it i would have done the same exact thing if i was in his position i'm not arguing that just read the room like everyone is already mad from the journal sentinel tweet and then you decide to just double down and throw on another tweet soon after it's like you just got to read the room just take your vaccine, quietly go about your day, and be just, yeah, like Riley said, just don't be on the app. <laughs> it's good, good advice for just in general. For folks. everybody. If, for yeah, everybody. Stay off Twitter. Yeah. 
I think it's instructive. I, I try not to do it. There's a reason I don't tweet that often. It's because it significantly improves the quality of my life. Um, and if anyone else is interested, I would highly recommend doing that as well. Now, we're getting a nor'easter out here. I just wanted to say that. You know, one's coming in out here. So to get four or five inches. Not sure why we get a special name. Once again, it makes it sound scary. But um, I appreciate that the Northeast is able to to, to scare us all into thinking that these I, I always are. felt that that was like almost like Knicks fans is like, oh, we have to, you get like a special title because like you're in New York or whatever. Whenever when I first heard Nor'easter, I'm like, what the hell is that? They're like, oh, it's a, it's a snowstorm in the Northeast. I'm like, I want to slap everybody <laughs> for coming up with that title. And then it's, it's always like four or five inches, like Adam said, it's like, that's it. Hey. I mean, I mean, there have been a couple in New York where it's like, oh, Buffalo gets buried by like 26 inches. So to be fair, some places do get blizzarded out, but it'll be like, oh, New York's going to get a nor'easter. And it's like, like you said, Kyle, it's a four inch storm in New York City. I'm like, OK, well, we could have just called that like a snowstorm or a right. blizzard in worst case scenario. But... I mean, Buffalo is at least up there by Canada. So that makes more sense of why they would get buried in snow. But like New York City, like New Yorkers have to do, make it about them and make themselves feel more special than everyone else. And speaking of East Coast, Coast elites, I'm not sure if they call it a nor'easter in Toronto. What do you guys think? I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> I feel like they probably got some other weird special name for it that's like slightly, you know, slightly off of that. But I, you know, the the Raptors did get piled on. Uh, <laughs> there, we the there we go. The alley-oop <laughs> and the dunk. There it is. <laughs> the Bucks in that, uh, the, this game last week. We're not going to talk about the Hawks game because um, – as Kyle so astutely said before the podcast, the Bucks were a better team and the Hawks didn't have good players either. Uh, Trey Young was gone. Anyway, Raptors game. Bucks win 115 to 108. Giannis has, excuse me, who? Giannis has 24 points, 18 rebounds, 9 assists. Drew, uh, a quieter game with 7.7 assists, but Chris has 24 points, 7 assists, 10 rebounds. Brooke with 20. Raptors. In that game, despite shooting a season high for a Bucks opponent at that time, Riley, 55 three-point attempts, Bucks are still able to uh, emerge with a victory uh, despite a furious fourth-quarter comeback. Yeah, I, so I rewatched this game last night. I kind of just had it on in the background on the night of. So watching it last night, it, the thing about this game was – Pascal Siakam is a totally unimpressive player and whoever posted that meme of a guy like just turning back and forth with the ball in their hands as they slowly <laughs> weave towards the basket was so so spot on. No disrespect to Pascal, but uh, you know, there's a certain type of way that he plays and that was definitely on display uh, on Wednesday night. I, I thought good game from Giannis. Um, good game from Brooke, obviously. It's pretty rare that he goes out for 20 these days. The, the thing that jumped out to me was during that fourth quarter, like the comeback, the main lineup that they rocked with those all the starters plus Brent Forbes out there. And I thought that was interesting because that's maybe like a little bit of a preview of, especially with Dante struggling lately, if they ever wanted to go to somebody else in that other guard position, maybe Bryn would be an option there. And so in watching those minutes, which is what I was kind of focused in on last night, especially Bryn Forbes is very Bobby Portis-esque in that he's never seen a shot he doesn't like. It's like, I'm just going to either, and he, by a shot he doesn't like, I mean, he doesn't like a wide open three that he likes dribbling into the two-point line or into two-point land and then taking like a long distance three or a long distance two, I should say. 
Um, and that's a problem because I envision Bryn Forbes as the Kyle Korver, like just stand in the corner and take the three or like stand on the perimeter and take the threes. But as an offensive option, he's a lot more of a reliable threat, I think, from all over the place, especially with his jump shot than Dante is. And so even though the offense didn't really blow people away in those minutes, and that kind of helped allow Toronto to get back into the game, um, it, it's sort of promising that there might be another option. And I, I'm curious how that looks going forward and whether or not Budenholzer makes that switch or not. But that was kind of the big thing for me. It was like, oh, Bryn Forbes with the starters. Uh, it didn't go super well, but it's small minutes, and maybe they'll work on that a little bit. I think for me it was on the combination of that, just more while Drew and Dante didn't have great games, they had great moments that helped Milwaukee seal the win. I mean, Dante was struggling the whole game, but he gets a steal, dunks it on a dude. No, he dunks it on a dude, then gets a steal, able to draw a flagrant on Kyle Lowry, who should have gotten kicked out of that game, hits all three of the free throws. I mean, what? That's just a five-point swing right there, and you didn't have to hit a three, which was good. And then Drew, right at the end when he just – put Pascal Siakam's on skates, put him on his ass, and they got the layup to more or less seal the game. That was, that's why you have Drew. He was just completely in control, and he was able to just take that moment. You And you kind of felt like he was going to make the shot, but how he went about it, 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 that's why you trade for him and not roll with Eric Bledsoe for another season. Otherwise, the Toronto game was just kind of a, Milwaukee was never at its best, but they did enough and they responded to the runs that Toronto made. They were able to get into a large enough lead. Toronto would slim the lead down. Milwaukee go on another run and kind of just be back and forth. So Milwaukee at least responded to the runs that Toronto made, something that they didn't do in the Eastern Conference Finals a couple years ago. And I think we'll talk about more, but the defense, even though they allowed Toronto to shoot 55 threes and a lot of them were open, they did that with not allowing any points allowing little points in the paint, and I don't think they allowed any fast break points. And if they do, they only allowed like two to four. So that is what, I mean, that's kind of like a pro and kind of Budenholzer's defense right there is you're not going to allow these points in the paint. You're not going to allow these fast break points. You're hoping that the teams take the threes and miss them. And I, I feel like this was, if Budenholzer had to sit down and be like, see, this this works. It, this is exactly what I wanted. The Toronto game is a perfect encapsulation of it. We saw a lot in that game, even though, you know, not not all of the threes were going, going down. You know, Drew Holiday was missing, but you saw a lot of patient Giannis in that game, which I appreciated. You saw a lot of not head down. Okay, when I decide I'm going to, when I go inside the arc, I am also going to the basket. That is the next place I am going to. He goes and he would sit in the top of the paint. He would sit near the free throw line. He would be patient and make the right read, kick it to someone in the corner. Uh, in the In the third quarter, especially there were a lot of missed shots from threes, but they were good passes from Giannis. He only has one three point attempt, which is, you know, I would say potentially cause for celebration, um, which was kind of nice, but you saw a lot of patient Giannis. You saw a lot of Giannis looking for guys in their spots. I think that was the slow sort of evolution of him, you know, finding his way in this offense, finding out where guys are going to be in this offense because it is different from last year. Uh, And then, you know, in the next game against the Pelicans, Bucks lose 131-126, obviously depressing. Giannis has a really good game, though, 38 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists um, after a pretty quiet first half. But, um, you know, <sighs> that game, 
was very frustrating. People were very upset after the first half when the Bucks were down by like 20. It was it was looking really really bad. Bucks are able to come back. So at the very least they did make it a game, Kyle, but I I can tell it it certainly wasn't uh it certainly wasn't the highlight of the year for Bucks fans. Kyle, before you answer, outlier game, yes or no? No. <laughs> it looked like <laughs> shit. <laughs> The whole first half, I stopped tweeting at halftime and decided to do Q and A. It was I stopped writing the rapid recap at halftime. I halftime, I figured this game is over. Milwaukee's not coming back. Maybe they'll get it down to like ten. Maybe they'll get it to fifteen at best. But no, that shit was over midway through the second quarter. There was, and it's not an outlier. It can't be an outlier when you're not even trying to defend well. It's not an outlier. The only outlier was maybe Eric Bledsoe hitting all those threes. But again, if you're going to give someone all those open threes, they're going to take it and they're going to make it. These are NBA players. No, I am not calling it an outlier. I'm calling it a disaster performance. And it was just, they looked like, uh, how do I explain this in the nicest way possible? It's like when you're in college. And you decide to kind of just coast to class thinking you're going to pass this exam. You don't need to study. You thought it was going to be fine. And then the exam is just completely out of nowhere, kicks your ass. And then instead of, you know, maybe trying to study, you you decide to study harder, but the exam still kicks your ass the next time. That's kind of the nicest way I'll explain what happened to Milwaukee Bucks on Friday. They thought they can coast. They got their ass beat. They got ran up and down the floor. And then when they tried making a comeback to make it look respectable, the damage was already done. You've already failed the first exam, and now you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole just to get a C. I, I'm was, looking. Oh, sorry, ahead, so I'm looking at the box score. So I didn't watch this game. No, the I'm box score a lot. It, it's a load of lies. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's just crazy. Not even the box. Just looking at the Pelicans box score. I mean, so I know, not an outlier. How many times has Lonzo Ball and Eric Bledsoe compared or combined for fourteen to twenty-seven from the three-point line? When was the last time Eric Bledsoe took more than ten threes from? I mean, I'm sure there was a game or two. And then also, they just run an eight-man rotation. Like is Stan Van Gundy trying to kill his dudes, or what are we doing out here? It's a uh, what a strange. I'm sure it was strange to watch. Was it just like the second half, the Pelicans just? kind of turned on the coasting because they were up at 23 and the Bucks sort of cared. Is that what the main difference was between the two Fs? Because I think it is – so, like, as somebody who didn't watch the game, the fact that they were down so big in the first half and then slowly clawed their way back, I, I'm not sure if there's anything besides efforts that, you know, Adam, if you notice if it was, like, an effort thing, really, or just the shots that were falling for the Pelicans stopped falling so much in the second half, or, like, what was the difference between the first and the second that, even though we lost, made up the ground? Well, Kyle hit it on the head. Frankly, the effort was absolutely atrocious, particularly in the first half. It was truly terrible. The execution was terrible. They didn't seem particularly interested in in finding good shots. Some of it in the second half is just mean regression. Like, I think the Pelicans were shooting 71% for a long period uh, in in the first half in particular, and then the Bucks finally got some shots to fall. The, the like the, the big three had barely any points at halftime. It was it was really, really quiet. So there was obviously going to be some points in the second half where they would be able to make it up. Um, so I, I would chalk it up, honestly, mostly to that, because defensively, I, I didn't even see them do anything particularly different beyond they started to switch more in the second half. Like, But we, we've seen that all year. They've still been switching basically throughout games, and they, they switched more in, to come out for the second half. But 
I didn't think it made a huge appreciable difference. And defensively, you know, the, the big thing that just kept killing him was they couldn't stop Steven Adams on the offensive boards. I mean, the guy got 10 offensive boards for the night alone. It was pretty, pretty dispiriting and, and embarrassing for a team that prides itself on, on defensive rebounding. Anytime, you know, Brooke was out of the game, they were definitely in trouble. But even when he was in, they couldn't stop Steven Adams from the offensive boards. I mean, the other thing is they, I mean, Zion could get to, Zion and, and Ingram were just getting fouls at will. You know, the, the Bucks couldn't stop themselves and, and they were both getting into the paint whenever they wanted. And Ingram was basically able to get whatever shot he wanted. So, I don't know. I didn't think, I didn't see a huge difference between the halves besides the fact that the Bucks started to make shots in the second half. So you just kind of got to keep that hope going because they were absolutely terrible in the first half. But uh, I mean, it was a, it was basically a failure from the, from jump, which was depressing. Yeah. It was the first quarter. They only shot like 28%. So you can, the first quarter was more Milwaukee could not hit a shot. Okay, fine. You get over that. But then the second quarter, the effort wasn't there. Steven Adams is getting every rebound Zion and like, Adam was saying Zion and Brandon Ingram were able to get baskets. So the second half was complete effort. That was the biggest problem. They weren't getting back. It was funny because you watch Toronto and they're getting back and they're stopping the transition. And then you watch the Pelicans game and it's the complete opposite. They just could not be bothered to get back on defense. And then second half was Milwaukee able to hit shots. But yeah, it was just a weird, like I said, by halftime, it was just like this game is over. And the effort that was putting in the second quarter just made you think like, what happened? Like, w- there is no reason for the effort that was shown to be as bad. And while the sc- final score makes it look respectable, the second half comeback makes it look respectable. You shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. How good do you think it felt <clears throat> for Eric Bledsoe to be like, oh, this is what it's like to be the crappier team that like shoots 75% from three <laughs> on the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, and also secondarily, how many of his three pointers were those heat checks that nobody asked for heat checks? Like where was that the majority of his three or did it seem to be within the flow of the Pelicans offense? Both. Yeah, they were both. I mean, the worst part is I was like, I think I t- tweeted earlier in the game, like I'll, if Eric Bledsoe was feeling good about his pull-up three, I'm feeling good about the Bucks tonight. And then he's like, <laughs> <laughs> rarely ever. The only time I fucking tweet and the team gets destroyed. But um, I, yeah, I mean, he, he was hitting the heat check once. That's what that's what mattered. Is he he was hitting them all night. He hit like five in the first half. He had hit like five with the Bucks like four, four times in his entire time with the with the team. So yeah, it was it was nuts. Yeah, it was definitely a lot. There were definitely heat checks and that. Those went in. Some of that was the flow of the offense. They were wide open. But it was just like, every time it was a heat check, at first I was like, okay, good. Take that heat check. Oh, what it? okay, the one heat check is not. They just kept, okay. Then the second half happened, and then I was just like, whatever. It's probably going to go in. <laughs> it was definitely, it was frustrating. <laughs> Kyle was like, we're two minutes into the game. If Eric wants to take his first heat check, he's more than welcome to. Uh, my, my other question would be for this game before I move on to the Hornets one. Was this the one where Boonholzer pulled Giannis to the side and like pseudo chewed him out or whatever, or had like a one-on-one heart-to-heart in the game? That would you guys? Yeah, make that of happened that? in that game. Okay. Does, I think it was. It... Yeah, I think it was because he didn't get back in transition. Um, was he let he let a defender he let the offensive player get back behind him, and obviously you want to. I think that's a, one of Bud's biggest things, and one of the you know he obviously wants never wants to get beat in transition. And that was a through line between this game and the Hornets game. 
thought the absolutely atrocious transition defense and the transition offense opportunities were horrendous. I, I have no idea what's been going on. I mean, like Dante is just like bouncing balls literally into the stands off his foot. The team has seems to have no chemistry these last two games in terms of transition. They're losing the ball. It should be easy baskets. There's like three on two opportunities that they just completely bungle. Uh, th- those were just those were more annoying than anything else from these last through the Hornets game and the Pelicans game. But moving on to that Hornets game, Bucks obviously lose that one as well. One twenty six, one fourteen. Giannis has thirty four points, eighteen rebounds, nine assists. Middleton has 18 points, just gets nine shot attempts up, though. Drew, 21 points and 17 shots. Dante DiVincenzo, zero points. That's been kind of a tough couple weeks for him. We can talk about that later. Bucks only have a 44 to 36 advantage in points in the paint, which seems really, really small given how much uh, the Hornets were shooting from outside. But once again, Riley, you know, similar to the Pelicans game, the story of this game is going to be the Hornets shooting 21 of 44, 47% from beyond the arc. Yeah, and in this game, it it was interesting because, yes, it was like uh, driving home the issues with the defense, but I didn't think it was necessarily for a lack of effort. Now, in the fourth quarter, when LaMelo Ball absolutely closed the game out, that seemed like that might have been a lack of effort and concentration on the part of especially the starters who were in at the end. But there was a lot of this game where the Hornets got wide open because either we're bad at switching still or like we're overhelping or, and like you said, like the pain points, I think you could derive a lot of that of like how well Charlotte moves the ball because I was impressed watching them. It's not even just LaMelo ball. It's everybody else on the team moving the ball around, moving on ball, off ball, lots of picks, lots of screens um, and a lot of willingness to kick the ball out and then, you know, move it two or three guys around. Like there were multiple times where it's not even just LaMelo Ball drives, gets the pass out. He's an excellent passer. It's a lot of fun to watch. But he'll get it to like an open guy. And then the Bucks, because either they've overhelped or they're trying to switch and not doing it correctly, then all of a sudden we're doing the Jason Kidd. Everybody like scrambles after the ball slowly but surely as it like <laughs> menacingly moves around the perimeter to an even more an open guy in the corner or whatever. Um, and so... Yes, it was annoying giving up a lot of threes again, especially after the Hornets game where it was like, oh my God, we're just going to go up like another franchise record in threes. But this felt more so like I would credit the Hornets with playing really at a high level with what they do. And that just happened to be a poor matchup for what Milwaukee tries to do. Because I mean, first quarter, like up until the final couple of minutes, the Bucks were up like 14 and then they were down 10 just a couple of minutes later and then throughout the second and third quarter they slowly grind their way back into the lead and then unfortunately like I said in that fourth quarter I don't know if it's like a Giannis thing Chris turned it over they did a really good job the Hornets did of denying Chris the ball and closing sets so like we couldn't get it to our best quote-unquote closer Um, and so I would like to give them more credits and you know you have to ask like oh well if you can't give the Bucks credit then what it's kind of indictment is that, but I was just impressed with the way the Hornets played. And I think the result kind of showed out that way. Yeah, this was interesting. Like I was saying before, the Hornets had 27 points off 16 bucks turnovers, which is kind of crazy. I would, I didn't get a chance to pull them up. I didn't see stats before. And I was curious what their shooting numbers were after those turnovers, but anecdotally, uh, Lamelo Ball absolutely shredded them in transition. Was either finding some guy close to the basket or 
finding a, a, someone on the perimeter who was able to knock down a three. Like you said, Riley, seemed like the ethos of that team is is pass happy, and they used that to get the Bucks defense out of sorts, which they already sort of look like it. Clearly, they're they're working through stuff and trying to figure out you know, how their communication works. That seems to be one of the biggest issues to my mind. So if you are a team that's willing to pass around and is confident in your ball movement and players finding open spots and thinking gambling that the defense won't be able to continue communicating throughout an entire possession, that seems like a pretty good uh, offensive philosophy to try to beat this Bucks team. And you had some insane plus minus numbers though. I just need to, I, I need to say this, like, Miles Bridges plus 25, LaMelo Ball plus 37 for a single game, which is crazy. Bryn Forbes minus 31. In 11 minutes, 11 minutes, Bryn Forbes was minus 31. That That is one of the craziest single game plus minuses I've seen in a long don't, time. Don't forget, don't forget to give a shout out to my guy, DJ Augustine, minus 21 in four minutes. Of play. <laughs> <laughs> I was and I, I know so for whatever reason I, I don't know if it was the second quarter but both Bryn and DJ were in there at the same time and the Hornets I mean I think that was when they went on their 21 point run that's just, it's just that's hard to stomach and I'm sure that was hard and I don't think DJ Augustine played another minute after that like they got absolutely waxed out there and then he just <laughs> didn't play again so it was it was not DJ Augustine's finest moment so you're right that there were some really crazy and a lot of that was attributed especially in the first half to like the Hornets just shot really, really well from three. Uh, but unfortunately, that's all you need. And all of a sudden, your box, you know, your plus minus is horrendous. Yeah, I I normally am not a big plus minus person. But when your bench guys are getting torched like that, that that is a sign of how the game went. When your bench guys, two of them are combining for like minus 50, while on the other side, they're, they're plus 50. Then that tells me... Yeah, you guys got ran off the floor in those couple minutes, which explains why the Bucks went from leading the first quarter to down like 14 at one point. And part of it is the Hornets, when I checked, I think halfway through the second quarter, they're like 11 of 14 from three, which, yeah, that sounds about right for how Milwaukee's week was. Three, The three-pointers were flying everywhere, no matter who they play. Yeah, obviously, tons of caveats with single game plus minus, but those those numbers are crazy. And the the one reason I will say that those numbers probably matter for this one is we saw Bud do an all-bench lineup, which he has not been doing as much this year, and it sucked really badly. It was really, really bad. and I, I Clearly, it did not work out in his favor. Um, and the plus 37 for LaMelo is obviously inflated, but it did feel like by far... He was the most when he was on the floor for the Hornets. He was the most impactful. I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe how many times Riley he was able to get to the basket and still finish for an end one. Like what? What? What's? What? What's happening here? We've said it before, and we'll say it again. If Giannis isn't going to be the best player on the floor, and if the best player on the floor is going to be an actual rookie, you're probably not going to. You're probably not going to win the game. No, I, I. So like. I haven't watched a lot of Hornets basketball. I don't watch a lot of other NBA teams in general, but I've seen the highlights. He seems to be a very competent ball handler. Um, I don't know if it's just it, so we can kind of, I don't know if we want to move off of this or this can kind of be a transition a little bit to a wider. We have like a defensive discussion, which I think is the big thing everybody's concerned about so far. Um, we tried to switch a little bit, but if you want to talk about a guy, 
who is singularly incapable of running any sort of switch defense, Brooke Lopez might be that guy. Uh, and it's rough watching him sort of like, so I think, I don't know. It's interesting watching Drew because whoever he's guarding is usually, unless they're a center, you can just say, oh, that's the other team's best player. That's been his assignment. And I don't know if he was stuck guarding a lot of LaMelo last night, um, but there were times where like LaMelo would just do a simple screen with like Cody Zeller and we'd be like, okay, uh, Brooke, you, sw- <laughs> you switch on him. And then Brooke, like he, he like halfway switches, but he halfway like backs up three feet. And that gives a guy like LaMelo, it's not Giannis-esque in that he's able to just drive, but you give him enough space to kind of get ahead of steam and he's able to then make things happen either with Cody Zeller as the guy who's rolling with him or kicking it out um, or finishing through context. I, I I don't know how much of it was like a defensive issue and him taking advantage of like unsure defense from us, having a slow footed center out on the perimeter, all that sort of stuff. Um, but like between that and like, like you said, the transition offense, he's just, he was so good. Like he, he always knew who was right behind him. There's so many times, this is so funny because Dante would have like multiple transition opportunities and he, he's like Malcolm Brogdon-esque in his inability to pass to other guys. Every time Dante has the ball in transition, and usually it is just him, but like he'll have Giannis trailing or Chris trailing and he'll just, he's like, it's my time to shine. Like this is Dante's time to take this shot. And like, he's just singularly unequipped to do that consistently in a way that helps out the team. Now he will convert on occasion, but sometimes that's a wasted possession. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know how much of it is like our defense was the issue. You got to give credit to a guy at a certain point for just playing really well, especially in the fourth quarter. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like there was a, a combination of issues that led us down into a downward spiral of sorts. Yeah, let's talk about that defense. We're about a quarter of the way through the season. It, clearly, it's what everyone is going to be talking about after these last two games, giving up a, a franchise record for threes to the Pelicans. And obviously, he's getting a beat down in a similar fashion to the Hornets. So, I want to shout out Was in the Brew Hoop comments, who left a, a very nice, astute comment about what, you know, asking what we can attribute the defensive issues to, and laid out a ton of different criteria, which I'm going to run through here and then have us do a sort of broad discussion about our opinions of it. But he has a, he has a bunch of different ideas. How much of it? is is to how much of these different things are to blame the other team shooting way above average the other team getting too many open confidence boosting shots the other team coming to play against us and not bringing the same energy for our team the scheme switching when we still need experience with more experience with switching the chemistry playing our scheme poorly particular player name blaming as in Giannis sagging brook too slow to switch other or a little bit of all of it so there's a lot of different stuff there. I think all different stuff that we've heard from the fan base. Uh, where are you with the defense, Kyle, and how it's looked to this point in the season? So I had said at the beginning of the season that if Budenholzer did not make adjustments, if Budenholzer did not try things, he's got to go. He's at least done that. So I can't completely blame him. So I can't really – scheme is part of it and switching, but at least they're trying it. At least they're working it out. At least they're doing that. So while the results may not be pretty, I don't think that's the biggest issue. I also don't think the other team coming to play against the Bucs and not bringing the same energy is true because I feel as though, yes, Milwaukee has been, in terms of the regular season, one of the best teams. But I feel as though 
this is also the NBA. And other than currently the Washington Wizards, you're probably not, or the Minnesota Timberwolves, you're not bringing that same, you're pretty much bringing the same energy to all of those teams besides those two, because those two are just not good at all. So I wouldn't say the bringing the energy side of it. The other team shooting way above their average, I think it kind of goes with the other team getting too many confidence-boosting shots. A good chunk of these threes are wide open. If you're wide open, you're going to feel like you're going to make it. And if you're wide open, then odds of it being, uh, the odds of it going in are going to be higher. So is it really shooting way above average if the shots are also above average looking shots? I don't know about player blaming. Brooke has not been as good as he was last year. Giannis has not been as good as he was last year. Pat biting a face has always happened. That's not anything new. I feel like Milwaukee doesn't have that many below average defenders. I would say Portis is a below average defender. I'd say DJ Augustine. I'd say Brent Forbes. And that's probably it. Everyone else on the Bucks is at least average to above average to really good. So there's no reason that they should be getting exploited as badly as they've been. And I think it really just comes down to Milwaukee's scheme is getting exploited. And while they are trying to switch, it's not working yet because they are now trying to start switching for the first time. And sometimes the Bucks just shoot themselves in the foot by overhelping. Overhelping, I would say, is the biggest issue out of all of these. Because especially when Drew is guarding the ball handler or Giannis is guarding the ball handler and the post, you don't need to dig in and help. We saw that a lot during Jason Kidd's time. Like they would dig in, help the guy in the post, but then that would leave them exposed. And I think they're doing that again. So if I really had to try and point a specific blame, I would say it's the overhelping. But overall, I would say teams have figured out the scheme, the base scheme. And now that they're trying to switch, there's going to be lack of communication, a lack of effort, which will then allow other teams to exploit it. You know, I have a question. Have they figured out the base scheme? Because if you go back to last season, like March, like let's say like halfway through last season, and from there on out, the Kyle, the point about that you said about the overhelping, that's been at times egregious. It's like, what are we, why, what happened to Dante? What happened... I mean, it's not like Pat was a great defender, but like all these perimeter guys, we've kind of brought it up a couple of times where it's like, you know, you stay home with your guy, whoever it happens to be, and you let Giannis and you let Brooke clean things up. And for whatever reason, I don't know what the, what the change was. I don't know if it's, I have to assume it's by design at this point, because at, at some point, Boonholzer has to step in and say, either knock this off or you're not playing, but like all the guys are doing it. And so when you do that, you that's like a, a clear violation of the principle that underpins what the defense is supposed to do. So I, I'm blaming, I, again, is that like Boonholzer, is that him trying something new in the base defense and it clearly not working? I'm not sure. So I would blame a little bit of like the players and execution in that regard. And then further, so in all those options that you said, Adam, I would say that it, I would blame the players executing. Um and you can, it, this is really clear on the switching defense, I think, too, because it's it's Drew and four other dudes that he's trying to carry on his back to direct a switching defense. The number of times that he runs into Dante or runs into Brooke because they don't know what they're doing. They're like, what? I'm, I'm guarding that guy now. Are you sure? And he, Drew has to be like, you go over there. You go over there. Like, you stay there. Like, he he's 
guarding the primary ball handler and directing the entire defense because nobody else has a freaking clue what they're doing out there. And yes, that's part of it is because we didn't have the training camp. This is something that we don't do. You would work it out. But I think a lot of it is like, you know, I think I have a tough time because these guys are professional athletes and it's like, you know, I've never had to do like a switching defense and stupid pickup game. So I can't speak from any sort of experience, but it feels like the principle of like switching is relatively straightforward. Now I have noted that people said, oh, it's, it's like the second or third switch action. That is when the team really gets confused. Cause it's like, oh, it's pretty straightforward. Okay. This guy's saying they pick Dante, you move with that guy instead. It's when like a second or third pick gets set is when the team's like, uh, I don't know what to do. And so it, I, I think it falls a lot on the players not being able to execute outside of Drew, because I think Drew is doing everything he can. But when you're not able to execute the defense, then all those other things start piling up because then it opens up the shots. Like we said before, these guys are NBA players. If you give them open shots, for the most part, they're going to hit them. And even then, I mean, you'll have nights against Toronto, for example, Fred Van Fleet. I think he went like two of 17 from the floor, but a lot of them were open threes. They just didn't fall. But for the most part, you know, a couple of those go and the result's totally different. So I would say it's execution. I say it falls on the players. Um, And if that's the, and it's hard to tell from the outside how much of that really is them versus like the coaching staff telling them to do something different. But to me, I think it's the players failing to actually do what's on there. And maybe they're just not capable. Maybe like, like I said, Brooke Lopez, he's not quick. And if he's struggling already to like, know when to identify when to properly switch, he's already playing from behind the eight ball with his foot speed. So I was going to answer your initial question on has the scheme been figured out. And I think the base scheme has, at least there's a clear way to beat it. You need a guard that you need a ball handler that's able to penetrate to the rim. You need, or a ball handler that is able to make passes. You, need, If you have one of those two things, you can work on it. You need someone that can reliably hit mid-range shots, as we saw Jimmy Butler do, as we saw Gore Dragic do, as we saw Kawhi Leonard do, because the Bucks are willing to give up those mid-range shots. And then after that, if the Bucks don't get the, re- what the Bucks wanted to mainly do is prevent uh, baskets near the rim and prevent fouling. But it seems as though lately Milwaukee's been following. Part of that is Giannis making dumb decisions on defense, trying to reach. You know, a lot of it is player execution. So I think it, there was a blueprint on how to beat it, but you had to have the correct personnel to beat said scheme. In terms of switching, I mean, a lot of it is just more you got to communicate. And yes, when you get to the second and third screens, then it gets a little bit tougher, but that's where you're supposed to be communicating. That's where you're supposed to be talking to your teammates. You know, I even in high school, that is one of the main things you learn is you shout, switch, switch, switch. If there's a screen, if you're going to do it, you need to shout it. And then you figure it out from there. So I I feel as though, while yes, it might be a little bit more complex at the NBA level. You still have to communicate. And I don't know how much communication there is because you can't hear it as clearly as if you're on the court yourself. But I, I kind of feel like you just with switching, it's not that complicated it you make it more complicated if you don't explain what the hell you're doing kind of like what you're saying like drew's out there trying to coach the whole defense while getting the primary ball handle themselves but it's like these are nba players they should understand a lot of them have played a lot of basketball throughout their whole lives and they have done switching in the past so they should at least know how switching works and the key to switching working is communication I think it also pisses people off a little bit because when this defense first came into existence, 
it's not that they really came out and say this, but like through like the athletic or like different stories and stuff, it was like, oh yeah, we're playing at next level. Like we're giving up threes, but we're giving up threes to the bad three point shooters. I think it was inevitable over time that, like you said, so to your point about teams figuring it out, I think the key of having a ball handler who can either drive or like make mid rangers, that's been an issue from the very start. I remember the very beginning of the Boonholzer era. I think our first game with him as coach was against the Hornets back when Kemba was part of the team and he just smoked us. Like it was, I think we ended up winning, but he went for like 38 or something like that. So I was like, okay, that's, that's an issue with the defense, but over time, it would make sense that teams are like, okay, if they're going to, by design, let guys get free on the perimeter, how can we put folds into our offense so that guys who aren't really bad three-point shooters are the ones getting those shots? And so it, it, it does feel a little inevitable that over time, unless you continue to like drive home or refine how you're doing things, that teams are going to find a way to get better shooters from the perimeter. And then that, again, leads back to the, like, oh, they're getting confidence-boosting shots. You know, I, I think they're getting it. It's not just by chance. They, it has to be somewhat by design at this point. So I, I don't know. It, it's a complicated issue. Yeah, to your point about other teams figuring out that part of it, you obviously saw with Miami, you know, initially it's like, okay, pull-up point guard can beat, can beat us because not many, you know, that guy can beat us. But not many teams have a pick-and-pop big who can shoot, who shoot that kind of way. So – the other teams were like, well, we don't need to do pick and roll action with a big all the time. Let's just use another guard. Let's use a wing. Let's use Jay Crowder and let's have him do the screening action. And then we can get those same pick and pop looks. And that's a, a really competent three point shooter as opposed to some big dude shooting it. A couple numbers for you guys. We've talked about it before. Bucks defense gives up a lot of wide open threes. They're giving up the most in terms of quantity in the league once again this year. For the last couple of years, they've allowed. Um, so 50% of the threes that opponents have taken this year have been wide open. Last year, that was 53%. The year before, 51%. Teams are shooting on wide open threes against the Bucks this year, 44.2%. That's the highest rate in the league. Last year, teams were shooting 37%. Year before that, 38%. So I do, I do want to say teams are shooting really well. Like, teams are shooting really, really well. I haven't looked at the overall three-point numbers across the league of wide open. There were definitely, just when I looked at it before this, definitely a lot more numbers in the 40s than there were other years. But that's a really, really crazy high mark against the Bucks. And maybe it is the other players, are they're doing action to get better shooters get those shots. But that is a very, very high mark that at some point will start to go down. And I don't want to do the outlier thing because I know people are sick of it. But at some point... That number will deflate. Will so. it? Yeah. Will it? Well, if, yeah, so. no, but there's no way teams are shooting 44. percent But if you're allowing year, half of open. your, if if it's a 50 50 on the shopping wide open, they've allowed this. It's the same thing for the last three years. I don't. No teams are going to shoot this well the whole year. But in an, in a changing NBA where it's all about threes and getting to the rim, you're getting dudes that can shoot threes. So while a couple of years ago, maybe teams still had guys that couldn't hit threes and Milwaukee's defense would allow them to take the shots. Now, most of these rosters have three point shooters. Everyone, it seems like almost everyone in the league can at least shoot maybe 30 something percent. It's harder to find someone that can't shoot a three than there is someone that can't at this point. So if half of those threes are going to be wide open and you're giving 30 ish, 30 plus three point shooters, 
an open shot, they're going to hit those. Like, it, that's the thing. Like, maybe it'll go down to, like, 49. Like, maybe it'll go down to, like, 41, 39 even. But it's still, if you're allowing half of your shots to be threes, if half of the threes are wide open, you can't be surprised that this is happening. I think it's really poetic that somehow, as Kyle said, that it seems like every team, every dude can hit them. We have two starters in Dante and Giannis who are materially incapable, especially right now, of making threes. So I think that's hilarious that we have to have two guys who like just can't make threes. I, so, Adam, can you? So, not the number of threes that are wide open, but the the percentage makes from wide open again. So this year is forty four percent. What were the two previous years? Yeah, so uh, thirty seven point five last year, which was okay. like nineteenth in the league. And then the year before that, 38.6, which was 12th. I mean, it, doesn't that still feel like those are pretty good numbers, even if there is a regression? So you're right, the 44% feels a little excessive. There might be something where teams are designing a little bit better, like getting the specific shooters that they want, whether that be, like you said, pick and pop with the right kind of guys. Um, but it still feels like that's like, those are not. I don't know, maybe that's mean average. So like you said, 19th and 12th, like, so say somewhere in between there's like the mean average. Um, but if it's still like, like Kyle said, if it's 50% of the shots, I, I don't, I'm too dumb to do the math right now. I am, I am in agreement with both of you. I, I don't like wide open threes either. The best way to defend the three point arc is to not allow three pointers, which the Bucks have done, but it has worked the last few years. But mm-hmm. as we've said, you know, as, uh, as, Don Draper said in Mad Men, that's what the switching is for. The switching is to help prevent all these wide open threes. But right now, they suck. They suck at switching so much. And I do want to say kudos to Drew Holiday. He is dragging them on his back on the switching. But I, I, I do have to say, clearly, like he is the one driving that bus. And he's everyone else is getting dragged along with it. And... I think sometimes he might be a little bit at odds with like what Bud is telling the other players to do. I mean, like this guy, this guy after every post game is saying, we just got to figure out the defense. You know, I just think we got to switch. I mean, I I think he's telling all these guys who like have two years of learned ingrained programming Mm -hmm. from Bud to not switch. So I, I think there's a little bit of, I'm very interested to see that dissonance. If you want to read more about it, Eric Name has some very good articles on The Athletic about it. Look, sometimes you learn things that you're not supposed to learn. You have to unlearn it, all right? <laughs> so maybe Drew yeah. is the adult, and these are a bunch of toddlers <laughs> that have to realize that, no, you can't let the dog lick your goddamn face every two seconds. No, you cannot go to this like part of the room. Do not play with the outlets. Like You have to unlearn things. It's kind of like Drew got sent to like like a like a camp and was like, oh, this is like a cult. Like, oh, this is we got a deep problem here. And, and I thought it was so funny after the New Orleans game where it was like Giannis is like, well, you know, if it takes the other team breaking a franchise record for threes to beat us, I'm okay. The injury is like, that's not okay. He's <laughs> like, that's that's tacitly that that can't be. Happening. That wasn't like, the only reason why they won Giannis. That is not the only reason. Maybe if that maybe if it was the Toronto game. Okay, fine. I'll since I'll give you that one. But you guys were getting they were getting ran out the gym against the Pelicans. So no, it's not just the franchise record of threes. Like the Jazz game. Fine. Okay. I'll at least understand that logic, but when every team is hitting a franchise record of threes against you, I don't know how many times you can use that excuse. 
the one thing that does give me a little bit of heart is, so we do have to account for the fact that there was no training camp whatsoever and preseason was super truncated and we have so much turnover on the roster. So them trying to figure this out. And I think Mitchell was saying in the chat the other day that like their number of practice days is like way down compared to years previous. So they don't have a lot of time outside of the games to work on this sort of stuff. Um, and in the past, we have seen that Budenholzer, I mean, just look at Eric Bledsoe. What do we all go back with Eric Bledsoe? That Houston Rockets game. It was like, oh, Eric came up with this idea. Budenholzer was like, that sounds good. Like an idea how to guard James Harden, go for it. And so as much as Budenholzer is annoying and takes forever to change, I don't think, especially this season so far, he's totally like against like, oh, Drew, shut up about the switching thing. They are trying it. It's not going well, but I, I don't think it's necessarily... Adam, the way that you said where he's like fighting against him, I think it's more so like this culture that everybody else has ingrained, especially the starters, like all the other dudes, that's whatever, but the starters, that's going to be tough for them to unlearn. Um, the, the downside is, yes, we have a lot of season, but if it's going to take this long to kind of get things together, at what point are they going to click? And then going, you know, wrapping back around to what Kyle said, you know, three below average defenders, DJ Augustine, Bryn Forbes, and Bobby Portis. Unfortunately, those guys are like, you know, four fifths of our bench, and they're going to be the guys who get like most of the minutes when they're not starters in the playoffs. And so it, maybe there's only so much you can do with that kind of personnel, even if you do switch or whatever. And then it's going to come down to how does Boonholzer stack up his lineups? How's his rotation? That's something I'm still not completely, like we said, the minus 21 and four minutes all bench lineup against the Hornets was an example of not good rotations. And so maybe you can make up for up for it over time becoming more comfortable with a new defensive system but then once we get past that hurdle the next hurdle is personnel issues on the bench and then rotation issues uh, personnel there's not a lot we can probably do about that pending a trade or something in the middle of the season and then rotations you know Boonholzer's changed but how much has he changed really a dude still loves you know we run in Thanasis out there for a while you know, he loves a good deep rotation, and that still seems to be the case so far this year, even though starters are getting more minutes. But, you know, when it comes to when it really matters in the playoffs, are we going to see a change there? I'm not sure about that. A lot of stuff with the defense. I'm, I am I, I mean, I, the switching is obviously a work in progress. As you were saying earlier, Riley, it's not a panacea. We saw Brooke Lopez get cooked a few times by someone else. That's going to be even more pronounced when those bench players come in. You know, that was something that if, let's say, okay, DJ Augustine, for example, if he's playing some point guard minutes and he is tasked with getting around a pick and roll, the thing that would happen that could beat the Bucks is that someone would be, that point guard would penetrate. The Early on, the worst thing was that point guard might just pull up for a jumper. That's not happening as much anymore. Now that point guard is potentially pulling up for a jumper if they're, but if they're really elite, they usually like to drive into the lane still and may not, if they can hit a floater, they'll hit it or they'll kick it out for a three. So if you switch that, all of a sudden you've got DJ Augustine potentially guarding a big or a wing. And I I do like the ethos that Drew was talking about, trust your man one-on-one. But that is how you get roasted in the playoffs when you have bench players, which goes back to the, the point of Bud. So... I, I do think one of the biggest issues still goes back to the overhelping. I still find that so confusing and bamboozling um, because that I, I think that's 
a part goes into the sort of trust your man, trust your man when you're doing switching, trust your man when you're playing the space defense. I, I think all of those issues are, are, are intertwined too. Yeah, I think the overhelping is probably the biggest problem that no one, I feel like no one is really, not a lot of people are talking about it or that's not what is talked about more than it should be is the overhelping that I think if they would stop doing that, that would at least cut down some of the wide open threes that they're allowing. Yeah. But my, my question for you guys, so let's say they continue to develop a little bit more at the switch defense, right? So at this point, what's the best lineup for, let's say we had to do like, we're going really switch heavy. I'm just trying to figure out because I don't think Brooke is going to be that guy. I really don't. I think he's probably and. at, as much as I love Bobby, I think in a switch defense, there is more room for like just pure heart and hustle and like effort for like trying to cover a gap. I think he probably would, I mean, it wouldn't be a lot better, but it would be better than him trying to figure out like where the F he's supposed to go on a draw. He's like, what am I doing? I'm like under the basket by myself. I'm just, I'm confused what's happening, which is fine. But like, I'm just trying to think of like what the best defensive unit would be for this team. Because if you want to do like a lot of switching, would that be like a Drew, Dante, Chris, like Tori Giannis lineup. I was going would they to ever say, even go with that. Giannis that has to be like at the, the five ball lineup, right? Yeah, Giannis yeah. has to be a five. You have to have Drew. You probably have Dante. You have Chris. And weirdly enough, I think if you're just gonna go switching and you say screw the offense, we're just gonna switch and hope for the best, then you go DJ Wilson or Tori Craig. Yeah. I, I just find it interesting because there's a lot, of, there's been over the years calls for like, you got to do the Giannis at the five. You got to try to do the small bond lineup. And there have been times where Giannis has played at the five, but usually it's him playing at the five with like another two or three bench guys out there. And I'm not sure how often we do a Giannis at the five, like super powered. Here's everybody else who's a starter who can fill in and let's see what happens with it. it. That feels relatively rare, and I would be interested to see if Budenholzer, as they continue to work on it, tries that at all. Um, maybe they have in, like, practice, and, like, it just doesn't work for whatever reason, but I'd be curious. You know, th- there has to be a way, if you're going to bring switching more in as your base defense, to maximize that with the personnel, and I'm not sure if they figured out what that personnel is at this point. I think there's a smaller version of that, and obviously we were just we just got done talking about uh, Augustine or Bryn Forbes getting roasting. But I think there's a I think there's a smaller version where Chris plays the four, Giannis plays the five. You have Drew and Dante in there, and then potentially Bryn. Bryn's the guy you kind of got to hide out. But if yeah. you if you're worried if you're looking for like the more offensive, sleeker offensive version of that that Tory Craig lineup, that's probably yeah, the I, answer. I suppose Dante and Tory out there, it's uh, you know it's already <laughs> that would be tough to try and thread that needle. I suppose. Uh, yeah, that'll be fascinating. Well, I mean, how are we how are we feeling about the offensive side of the ball? I think the offense is fine. They're just if Mo- Milwaukee just needs to clean up the turnovers. And a lot of those turnovers are just careless, can't make an entry pass, can't make a pass to the guy in the post. Giannis barreling towards a defender and gets called for a charge. Like I feel like that's what most of these turnovers are. So if they can clean that up, I mean, the offense is still somehow ranked first. I think the offense is good enough to hide some of Milwaukee's defensive issues if they can get the switching stuff figured out. So I'm not worried about the offense, weirdly enough, because most of these players, even Dante in his slump, is still a threat to... I mean, Pat Connett is shooting really well. He's probably going to regress. But like Dante's regressing, and hopefully he still gets to like that 34 35% rate. But... Yeah, I feel fine about the offense. I don't think 
as much as the offense has hurt them in crunch time, I don't think that's a big enough issue compared to the defensive side. I think I would agree that I'm not too worried about the offense. So we, the past couple of years, we've had the best offense in the league. Part of that is by design. But the issue that really killed us in the playoffs was the closing lineups and the inability to, it was like pretty much the Chris Middleton show because Giannis wasn't reliable on ball. He turned it over or like ran into dudes or like bad passes. Eric just didn't show up, even though he was like a, a body out there without a soul. He was just, he existed, but that was about it on the court. And so I was like, okay, here's Chris Middleton. This year, this again goes back to the lack of a training camp and figuring out everybody's roles. Drew was here for like a week and a half and he was like, okay, season's about to start. So we, it feels like the presence of Drew and even in the Toronto game, we saw it where like Kyle said that last possession where he like totally killed Pascal Siakman and got a totally uncontested game, like layup to win it or whatever. It, it feels like they're going to need to work out how do we use Chris and how do we use Drew properly with one another and with everybody else on the floor to get those closing possessions? Because even though the offense is good, the regression in the defense means the games are closer. And so the offense has to be really good at the end. Now against Charlotte, I think there was like a seven minute stretch in the fourth quarter where they didn't make a single basket. You can't have that happen. But that feels like more so a product of they're trying to figure out what everybody's place is and Drew is doing a lot of deferring right now. I understand why he's doing that because he's the new guy. He's not trying to like take over too much or like impose too much. But as the year goes on, he becomes more comfortable. I believe in him as an upgrade, especially over Eric Bledsoe as a late game threat. And then it comes down to comfort with everybody else on the team and scheming things correctly. But I, like Kyle said, I'm not too worried about it. Um, and, and I think also... Giannis seems to have recognized a little bit more that he's he's probably just not the guy at the end of the game. He's still a threat, but he doesn't have to be the guy. And we've talked about this over a couple of weeks. There's nothing wrong with that. Like you're more valuable understanding your place. There's 48 minutes in a game. You don't have to being the hero for the final two. That's overwrought. That's you don't buy into that. Just get the win. And to get the win, if that means defer to your other guys that you believe in, True and Chris. Go for it. And I think that's going to make things a lot easier as they get more comfortable with how to close things out. So I'm not overly worried about it. I think it's a good sign that they are the still top rated, even though it, it's as much of a work in progress on offense as it is on defense. Yeah, that's the, that's the most important point, I think, at the end, is that last year we saw, we think about the defense last year, we saw the same defensive scheme. It was a world beater. It was number one. We were like, well, we just got to stick with this. Well, this year the offense is number one. And I, it doesn't seem as fluky because they're trying out different stuff. Clearly, there's this new sort of offensive system that they're trying out. Everyone is still working through where exactly they're going to be. So optimistic that that will continue. But it's been uh, it's it's certainly been an interesting first quarter of the season. And I think the personnel that Milwaukee has this year is more offensively. It's offensively better than last year. You know, instead of having Robin Lopez as your backup five, you have Bobby Portis. Instead of having... You know, Kyle Korver, you have Bryn Forbes instead of having, I mean, other than, I would say George Hill was better than DJ Agassi, but it seems like the backups at each of these positions, this year Milwaukee is upgraded on all of those, again, except George Hill with DJ Agassi. But at least it seems as though the offensive personnel is better this year than what they had last year and maybe rivals what they had in Bud's first season. 
Yeah, lots more season to go. Lots more time to talk about the defense and the offense, thankfully. But uh, for now, we're going to take a real quick break. And on the other side of this, we'll do our miscellaneous topics and close it out. So stay tuned. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight, we'll break down... We break down who will be cutting... Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hit Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. All right, we're back. Rapid fire questions. Go ahead, Riley. Take us away. A couple of quick ones to speak, gentlemen. So we're going to start it off with the Bucks themed one. Let's say it doesn't even have to have the stakes of a playoff game, but it is a game. You need a two-point basket to win it. Who are you giving the last shot to? Thanasis or Tory Craig? God. You only needed two to win. You don't even have to trust trust either of them from three. Tory Craig. You know what? I'll say Thanasis, because if there's one thing Thanasis is not, he will not shy away from the shot. He'll take it. I'll be mad, but he'll take it. I don't know if Tory Craig is gonna take it. That's true. Yeah. Thanasis, there's a lot of dudes on the bench who are like, haven't seen a shot I don't like. And Thanasis is definitely one of those dudes. He's like, I don't care (laughs) where I'm on the court. I'm taking this jumper. Um, Favorite film genre. So like, if you never heard of a film, but they're like, oh, it's like this genre. And you're like, I'm in no matter what to go ahead and sit down and watch it. What's your favorite film genre? Maybe thriller. Does that count? Probably thriller. Yeah. I'd say an action movie. Kind of like a Mission Impossible style. You know, like, yeah, I would say action movie. I think there's a lot of to be said about action and thriller. It's like, well, there's a baseline stupid here, but at least it's like a popcorn eating stupid, so I can get into that. I'm not enough of a film snob to hate it otherwise, so I agree. Um, So far this season, DJ Augustine, I'd say, has he's had some up and down so far this year. Would you guys believe, or would you guess he's scoring above or below six points per game so far this season? I bet he just ticked above from that from like one game where he scored eleven points. See, I was thinking below because I feel like he's just had like a lot of two and four point and five point games. I feel like he's got like five point three or something like that. Kyle is correct. It's, he's 5.5 points per game so far this season. I don't have the shooting splits, but I can't imagine they're great. He's uh, he's struggling, our good friend DJ. Um, all right. You can move to any state than the one that you're currently living in right now. Your lifestyle remains relatively unchanged, but you have to move to another state in these United States of America. Which state do you choose? So I still have like the same same type of job, 
same. Say say your life is pretty much unchanged, except you're not living in Wisconsin. You're not living in uh, Pennsylvania. You don't even have to specify city. You could just say, you know, this this state in particular. I guess if my lifestyle's not changing too much. I would say Minnesota. I'd say moving back to St. Paul because I feel like my life would still like everything that I would do. Like my interests are still relatively the same. So just going to Minnesota would be okay. Yeah, I go. I'd say Minnesota. I'd say St. Paul. I'd move back. Okay. All right, Adam. Oh, maybe San Francisco. I'd always be been interested in there. See, it's uh, too expensive for me. <laughs> well, I thought my lifestyle is the same. Yeah, so let's say I'd be like, broke. <laughs> well, not at all. So, like, let's say you'd still be able to have like a home. You'd have like, but like your income would be relatively. Yeah, I'm, sc- so, I'm like, scaling my income with my. Yeah, so say you scale it up. Oh. Like, you ha- yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say, Kyle's, Kyle's like the most committed Midwesterner ever. He's oh, like, I'm no. actually just moving to Minnesota. <laughs> I thought I was still getting paid the same. So I was like, yeah. Let me no, 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 no. Like, you can scale fine. it up. You oh. can scale it up. Okay, okay. Then I probably... I would... If you still want to choose Minnesota, no, I think No, I definitely do not want to do that. <laughs> okay, okay. Nope. I probably... I feel like Seattle. Okay. So Washington and... San Francisco, California. Very good. Okay. I was going to say, I'm like, wow, Kyle, that's really dedication. No. To, <laughs> I thought I was looking at the seats. I was like, I can't afford San Francisco. I can't afford like LA and Seattle, like Texas. I'm like, no. Okay. I'm glad we clarified that. All right. Final question. Uh, congrats. You're the new uniform designer for the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, what is the primary color you would choose for our next alternate uniform set? Blue. Maybe a couple different shades. Uh, you thinking like like maybe like some inspiration from like some bodies of water or something? That'd be kind of cool. I still kind of like the blue. I I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to go with. So I, I'm I'd go blue. I would. Okay, I, here's what I would do. I would I would guess cream would cream would be my choice. I feel I like be, I, I feel like cream, cream should be like out. the home like it should be green and cream as the colors and then maybe you have a white in my opinion but i'll i'll go with cream i kind of miss those red the red jerseys i mean they were garish but the ones that just said milwaukee i thought of all in that era of the uniforms i thought those were like the best so i would bring the red back i know david dunn 21 is turning over in his his twitter dms right now but uh it because it's so dissonant with everything else but i think bring the red back for one of these i think uh i need a shout out to the old for much of the franchise's history and then even up until a couple years for the rebrand so that's where i would go yeah i think like having a cream jersey with like some red like lettering like like that old like the big first set like of milwaukee like the white and it had like the red cursive lettering in milwaukee just make that cream mm-hmm. yeah boom problem solved I just saved the Bucks a lot of time, and they should write me a check. I agree. All right. That's all I got for uh, Rapid Fire this week. Fantastic. Let's move on. Kyle, you got a film review. Yeah, so after last week's um, absolute disaster, that was Cats. I went back to watching a musical because why else would I, I – I just like torture myself, I guess. So I watched The Greatest Showman. I did finish this movie, so that already gives it at least a 5.5, which is nice. I think it's an. I say, I'd say it's all right. I think if you just want a movie to put on, sit on the couch, and just like enjoy, and not have to like overthink it, 
It's a fine movie. I think the music is really good. I would say this is a movie that you can just get the soundtrack, like just listen, get the soundtrack, listen to it, and you don't need to watch the movie, though. I, I, I think that highly of the music in The Greatest Showman. I think there's aspects of it. I'm not really a big circus person either. So like that whole angle just makes me like, eh, whatever. Like I, I'm just not a circus person. So I would say listen to the soundtrack. You can watch the movie. The movie's like a solid 5.8. But listen to the soundtrack instead. You'll enjoy that a lot more. And you don't need the soundtrack. You don't need to listen to music to watch the movie. Did you have a hard time seeing Zac Efron playing Troy Bolton as Harry Houdini in this film? Was that hard for you? It was weird. Because he's in that movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's weird. Hugh Jackman's the lead. Yeah, Hugh Jackman's the lead. Um, Zac Efron's in it. Zendaya's in it. Michelle Williams. It's also funny because, like, they show us a point in P.T. Barnum's life where he's supposed to be, like, 20, but it's, like, Hugh Jackman, who's, like, 50. (laughs) It's like, no. (laughs) You don't look like a 20-something-year-old. Like, you you are 50 years old, dude. Like, stop. But it is a little odd. I was expecting a basketball to be dribbled at one point. Didn't happen. (laughs) Unfortunate, I guess. That would have made it a little bit better. Okay. Very good. Well, better than cats. That's a that's yeah. They better than cats. Slap that on a theatrical re- release. Be like better than cats. I, I needed a cleanser, so we cleanse the music palette. Okay. Do you know circus people in your life? Like people who like really like going to the circus. I thought I, you were going to say like people who are in. I was going to say like no, I don't know anyone. Anyway. <laughs> that, that would be interesting. I feel like. I probably do know people that enjoy going to circus. Like they just don't say it out loud, but they would secretly <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to go to the circus. Have you, have you guys ever been to a circus? Once. Yeah. I have a vague recollection of doing it when I was younger, but I, I remember almost none of it. Me, me too. Uh, it was weird. I think I was like 12 or something. Like this is just strange. I'm like, why am I in the Bradley center watching elephants stop around? Right. Like, this is so weird. <laughs> yeah. That's what I saw. I was so at weird. the Bradley center. I was like, this is fine. Like, I don't want to do this again. I was just worried the whole time. Like this is going to be one of those ones where the tiger just snaps and kills that person right here, right now. I was like, this is just my luck. It's going to happen at the Bradley center. Somebody's going to get mauled by a tiger right now. I was just kind of worried the whole time. Was, or like the trapeze artist misses and it just falls. And it's like, Oh, Ooh, it's too much for me. Too much. All right. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the, <laughs> Circus the discussion. Yeah. The Riley's got a fountain, a fountain pen review. So it's actually, it's not a fountain pen this week because I've yet to bother to switch up inks or pens or anything. But this week, we got some new stationery. We got the Leuchtturm. Look at how big this damn thing is. It's taller than my freaking head. Uh, it's so like a it's a Leuchtturm. It is like a laptop. It's, it's pretty thick, too. Um, it's a Leuchtturm A5 Master hardbound notebook. So um, I've talked before. I like Leuchtturm. They're a... Uh, German stationery company they do that all the journals I get and everything I usually go for them the paper is not like the highest quality but it's good enough to um, absorb like especially fountain pen inks and so for me I don't know about you guys but for me for a lot of different things whether it be articles for brew hoop or other things that I'm writing I like to do a little bit of writing by hand just because I feel like if I do it typing I get like the worst version of whatever the first, the rough draft is. So I'm like, if I, it forces me to slow down essentially and choose my words more carefully. 
And some of the other booklets I had, they just weren't big enough or not comfortable enough. So I figured, let's get a really huge one. I can just toss whatever I want in here. doesn't have to have any sort of ordering. It's a blank page, so it can just formatting, whatever. Um, but so far, it's been really useful as just like a general, if I'm not writing in the journal, just other things, thoughts, keeping track of things, whatever. It's been very helpful for that. It's probably a little too big. I didn't do the measurements before I ordered it uh, to get an idea for how big it is. But uh, if you're looking for a giant, you know, sort of like composition notebook to write stuff down, you can get it blank or whatever, gets the job done. So highly suggested if you're looking for an oversized notebook for whatever reason. Yeah, I definitely don't write things down. I just, I use the text, like voice to text. That is how I come up with- Oh, you article. dictate it? Yeah, yeah, because everything's up here and I can't, type it out. I told this to Mitchell earlier. I know what I want to say. I just don't know how to say it. So I'll just say it out loud. And then hopefully it can at least put words on a screen. I can edit it and clean it up after. I think that's just as I've heard actually a lot of people and I, I haven't really tried it out, but I was interested in trying that now that I have like the Mac and they're pretty good with like transcription and things like that. But I think that's just as valid. It just for me, when I'm like typing, I'm almost like, I fall back on tropes when I'm writing, like different cliches that I just go with all the time. And so to force myself away from that, by the third time you write like the same sort of sentence or like combination of words, you're like, oh, I can see because two lines right above it. I'm like, oh, I wrote that same exact thing. So that forces me to do something a little bit different, which I think is helpful. True. Oh, one question on the stationery. Does, is it good with like holding the ink or does like the ink bleed through? No, it, so it does a really good job. So it really depends if you get we've talked about this before, like the width of the nib. So if it's like a bra, that means it's putting a lot of ink down. It's going to be a thick line. In those cases, this isn't the kind of paper for that because it will bleed a little bit, but medium and below, and then obviously pencil, you know, a simple gel pen, rollerball, all that, it'll take it no problem at all. Um, but it's, it's like mid-tier quality. So the top tier stuff is like Japanese um, fountain pen paper. And then this is like the middle tier. It's, it's better than just some office paper you get, but it's not as good as that top end. So this is this is kind of the middling option. It's not as expensive. It's easier to find those sorts of things. But for the most part, it gets the job done for the ink that I use or the kind of nips that I use too. Gotcha. Wonderful review. I do not write things down, and that is why Riley's Monday Morning Media Roundup is generally so eloquent. <laughs> Um, all right, let's move on to predictions. We've got four games this week. Home versus the Trailblazers. Home versus the Pacers. The Brogdon Grudge Match game at the Cavaliers for a back-to-back -back Friday and Saturday. Riley, what say you? I think we're going to go two and two this week. Uh, it really depends on how Giannis is feeling. He tweaked his knee against the Hornets. We haven't really heard what the update is there, but if, he, if it's hurting at all, they might give him the night off against the Trailblazers. And in that case... I know Dame just had the game winner the other night, so I would say maybe a loss against the Trailblazers and one of the games against the Cavaliers, uh, just because they're playing teams really tough so far this season. So two and two, uh, in no particular order of which of the two Cavs games we're going to lose. But I think we'll beat the Pacers. Uh, it'll be a good grudge match, like you said, and two somewhat competitive Eastern teams. Can we just not? There's so many games this week. <laughs> Four games in seven days is too much. Um, I'm actually going to say three and one, I think. Portland's not at full strength, so that helps Milwaukee in that regards. Dame Lillard's probably going to drop like 50, but I think Milwaukee can weather that. I think they're going to beat the Pacers just because, again, not at full strength. I can see Brogdon wanting to do too much because I think this is either the first time or only like the second time he's been able to play Milwaukee because he's been hurt all the other times. So 
Milwaukee wins that. Loses <laughs> the first Cavs game. I'll get that sucker punch in there. <laughs> loses the first Cavs game. I just think it's going to be – the Cavs have been playing tough. I think it's going to be a battle, and Milwaukee might not be expected expecting as much. They've played the Cavs before, and they know it's going to be tough, but I think they'll win. They'll lose the first Cavs game, win the second Cavs game. I'm going to go – Three and one as well. I think they'll beat both. I'll beat the Cavs both times. I think they'll beat the Blazers. I think the Pacers might give them some trouble. So three and one for me. All right. That'll do it for the Brew Hoop podcast, episode 83. Go to brewhoop.com for all of our coverage. You'll see us talk about uh, this defense. I think Mitchell might be working on something. There's a tease there about the defense. Go follow us on Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And. For all of us here, we will talk to you again soon.